Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Stefan Winter joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about Ottoman Syria in the 16th century, so the 1500s. Dr. Winter is a Canadian historian who specializes in the study of Ottoman Syria. He's a professor in the College of Social Sciences and History at Koch University, based in Turkey. He's also a professor in the Department of History at the University of Quebec at Montreal, based in Canada. He's written numerous publications over his career, including authoring the book, A History of the Alawis, From Medieval Aleppo to the Turkish Republic, and that was published by Princeton University Press. And he's co-editor of the book, Aleppo and its Hinterland in the Ottoman Period, and that was published by Brill. And Professor Winter joins the show as well from Turkey. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Good to connect with you today, Stefan. So when we're chatting about Syria in the 16th century, can you describe what the geographic demarcation of that territory would have been? That's, uh, that's already a pretty leading question in a sense. As you can probably imagine, there was no territory, no unit, no country called Syria uh, in that period. We tend to use it as a shorthand for the area of the Near East that kind of corresponds to the ancient Byzantine Roman province of Syria. Um, so anything kind of south of the Taurus Mountains, uh, west of the Euphrates River, sometimes will include some parts of Mesopotamia in that and all the way down into, well, the Syrian desert and uh, up, to, up to Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula, but before the Sinai Peninsula. And this, at the beginning of the 16th century, uh, was all part of the Mamluk Empire. Okay. So if someone was looking at it as a, as a map, generalizing and, and thinking in modern-day uh, terms, the, the, the mo- there's the modern country of Syria. So would they be visualizing something that would be in territory when using this term in in this context a bit larger in size um yeah i mean syria in that period some people refer to as sort of geographic syria natural syria or the bilad asham it would encompass what uh, the modern countries of syria lebanon palestine israel jordan a little bit of southern turkey as well that's sort of the general area we refer to as syria sort of cultural historical syria um, but again, it was no actual fixed territorial unit with that name um, in the 16th century. Yes, okay. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's helpful to, to, to visualize. Okay, so can you describe in the 16th century what the political structure was in Syria, in this territory that we're speaking about today? Yeah, so that territory, I mean, at the beginning of early in the 16th century, it was part of the Mamluk Empire, like I said, being ruled from Cairo. Um, Very soon then, in 1516, it does get conquered by the Ottomans and integrated into the Ottoman Empire. So while it was part of the Mamluk Empire, I think it was divided into six six regional provinces uh, focused around uh, Aleppo and Damascus and Tripoli and a couple of others. When the Ottomans came along, they had it under military occupation for a little while, but wound up um, dividing it into three major provinces in the 16th century. What was the geopolitical can you expand on the geopolitical environment as it pertained to the mamluks that had the ottoman empire gain hegemony 
in this territory. You mentioned up until, and it sounds like part of 1516, I presume, was it was controlled by the, the Mam Mamluks, and then that hegemony uh, transferred. Can you speak more about what, what the, the dynamics would have been that would have facilitated those events? Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that historians argue about uh, quite a bit still. What were the reasons for the Ottomans to conquer Syria and then, in fact, uh, conquer and defeat and annex the entire Mamluk Empire afterwards? Um, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, obviously, any empire likes to expand and have more territories. Syria or the territories of Syria were a very important and rich part of the Mamluk Empire. Um, of course, Cairo was always the biggest, most important city in the region. But after Cairo, all of the big cities, uh, Aleppo, Damascus, and so on, were all located in Syria. It's a very fertile region, at least Western Syria. A um, lot of, uh, well, manufacturing, small industry, and so well, industry, uh, handicraft, and so on in the large cities. So always an attractive addition to any empire. Um, in addition to that, you kind of have to get into the, the larger regional context of the early 16th century, where the Ottoman Empire was in fact engaged in a, in a very major power struggle against Safavid Iran, against Shi'i Iran. Um, ultimately, the, um, the Ottomans um, wind up accusing the Mamluks of having allied secretly with the, uh, with the Shi'i Shahs in Iran. That's not exactly true. But they were um, the problem, the conflict, uh, the rivalry with the Mamluks was diverting attention from this greater rivalry with uh, Safavid Iran. So that's another reason for getting rid of the nuisance in Cairo and, and Syria. Um, third reason, um, the Mamluk Empire also controlled uh, not just Syria and, and Egypt, of course, but also Arabia, including the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And any dynasty, any Muslim dynasty that, you know, really wants to um, have a lot of prestige and legitimacy would like to be seen as the protector of the holy sites of Islam. So that's another reason for, for wresting all this territory away from the Mamluks. And a final reason maybe one can mention at this point already, and this is the 16th century, the Europeans, specifically the Portuguese, are starting to be very active in... Um, well, the Indian Ocean, sometimes even the Red Sea, coastal areas of Arabia, um, this threatens the Ottomans. The Mamluks are not really competent. They don't have the technology. They don't have the Navy to deal with this threat. So already there, the, the Ottomans sometimes came and, and lent them a hand, tried to chase the Portuguese out of the region, um, but finally realized, look, this would be easier if we just controlled everything. So we're speaking about Ottoman Syria during the 16th century today. So for the most part, we're speaking about the, the years 1516 up to the end of the century, the end of 1599, correct? Yeah. Okay. Okay. What was the, can you speak about the religious dynamic at, or dynamic that play in this period of time in this in this territory well that's also a good question um in some ways you know in the middle east uh, religion explains everything and religion explains nothing and um since controlling the holy cities of mecca and medina was one motivation among others um because the ottomans in this period were um in this great conflict with shi'i iran and starting for the first time really in history 
to think of themselves as the guardians of orthodoxy, of Muslim orthodoxy, something they never really bothered with very much before, because cities like Damascus and Cairo especially were these ancient centers of Islamic civilization and learning and, and madrasas, religious schools, and so on and so forth, um, all of this is, is certainly one aspect, uh, one factor in the equation, why the Ottomans were so interested in Syria. Um, how important that finally was? Well, it's hard to say. Syria had a lot of minorities, uh, Shia minorities, Christian minorities, and so on and so forth, like, like any other part of the Ottoman Empire, really. And the Ottomans, even though they were thinking of themselves now as the, um, as the number one Muslim dynasty, protectors of Mecca and Medina, they would sometimes even uh, kind of claim the title of caliph in this period, once they conquered Cairo. Um, despite all of this, I mean, the, the religious ideology is important. At the same time, it didn't really play much of a role in how they governed Syria. What was the approach or policy to inhabitants in, in this territory then that were part of a religion that wasn't the state religion? Yeah, that's, that's quite controversial too. Sort of the old answer, the old Orientalist answer to some extent is yes, the Ottomans tried to impose their version of orthodoxy, their version of Sunnism, so on and so forth. Um, frankly, I don't think that's true. Um, like any empire, they were interested in one thing, and that is taxes, getting, making the most um, out of their territories um, in terms of revenue. And what exactly these different people in their territories, newly conquered territories, what they spoke, what they believed, and so on and so forth, was very of very, very little interest to an early modern empire, as long as they paid their taxes and didn't revolt. Language and writing. What, what was the, can you speak about, and there's a lot of territory here, so I presume there's um, many different languages and writing systems that were probably more indigenous or had been around, depending on the territory was what in this period was there a was there a state language and a state writing system um a state language and state writing system not in the modern sense i mean already the mamluks and several dynasties empires before of course had a very complex um, legal and administrative system which was entirely arabic based Ever since the rise of Islam, this is the, the great contribution of Islam is, is the legal system, which is based on you know, early texts, including but not limited to the Quran. And this elaboration of a very, very, um, uh, well, uh, dense tradition of, of um, the theological discussion and jurisprudence and treatise writing and so on that has, has accumulated and, and, and accrued over the centuries. And the Mamluks certainly use you know, the Sharia, the Islamic holy law, and built on that, the Ottomans did as well. Um, Arabic remained an important administrative language of the Ottoman Empire because they were so dependent on Islamic jurisprudence as well, right, right until the 19th, even 20th century. Um, so in that sense, Arabic was the predominant language. Arabic was the language of scholarship of Islam, quite simply. Um, so from, from Western, from the Western Maghreb all the way to, you know, Northern Pakistan or however we want to frame it now, um, Arabic was the dominant scientific language. And certainly in, in the Mamluk Empire, um, for anything having to do with state administration, Arabic was dominant. 
Um, even then, already under the Mamluks, Ottoman Turkish was starting to become an important language in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, Persian, which of course, Persian is also heavily influences Ottoman Turkish. So these languages were among an educated elite were, were known or sometimes known. Um, but in addition to these, um, this one major administrative language and two or three other written languages in the region, the population itself spoke maybe half a dozen, maybe a dozen more. Um, there were uh, Armenians, Armenian speakers, Aramean speakers, Kurds, lots of them, um, Turkmen already settling since several centuries, in fact, in northern Syria, um, and various other local dialects, um, some of which still exist today, some which don't. So, and it could be anachronistic, the, uh, and you somewhat pointed that out with the, the term, term state, but I'm going to use it because I think it, yeah. it makes sense um, in, in, in asking the, in, in having the question make sense. So, is it that the Arabic script was the closest that would have been a state uh, writing system, and that there was many, many different languages that were being spoken, and some of the popular ones that you mentioned were, were Arabic, Ottoman Turkish, Persian, I think you said Armenian as well. Is that a, is that a way of, of, um, of describing that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, under the Mamluks, I would say Arabic was the only language um, of importance in terms of state and administration and, and religious education. I mean, Arabic completely dominates that. Once the Ottomans came along, um, a lot of their administration, a lot of their tax administration, uh, their their government orders and so on, were then written in Ottoman Turkish, but the legal system um, continued to be in Arabic. So it was kind of a dual language administration, certainly in the Arabic provinces. So we chatted about this prior to uh, to starting. Uh, Arabic is a language you you, you speak. H how would yeah. you? Yeah. How would you? So going back to the 16th century, and you might have to, well, you might have some evidence to, to, to determine this, but you also might have to infer a bit. If you were chatting with someone fluent in Arabic in the 16th century in this, in this territory, and, and you two are having a, a conversation, would you both be able to understand each other to a sufficient degree? Well, I'm really not a great linguistic expert or speaker of Arabic, but uh, my sense of the matter is yes, because if we look at texts from this period, um, chronicles, um, Arabic documents, and so on, the language is pretty well exactly the same as today. There's really no difference, and unless there's like huge differences of pronunciation in individual words, which seems very unlikely, um, the Arabic of the 16th century is identical to that today. This, for example, would be a big contrast with what little I know of, you know, French in the 16th century, English in the 16th century. When we read texts from that period, we really get the feeling, wow, this is this is old stuff. This is barely comprehensible today. Um, in Arabic, this is not the case. When I was in Tunisia, something that I found interesting is that in Tunisia and many of the Arabic countries is that the the children learned the modern Arabic writing system. And then when you're, and then when you're speaking, they might be writing in that system, but they also might be writing in their own dialect. And in some cases, they could even be using uh, a different, a different script, something that I found that was common with many people in Tunisia was to write in, uh, 
to write Arabic in a Latin script, for 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 instance. So when when it comes to the Arabic script, how similar was it in the 16th century to what it would be today? Would would you believe? Would it be very very similar, just like the, the identical, completely identical? There's no difference. Yes. Okay. Okay. Which makes it easy for a historian, obviously, to to deal with texts from that period. Okay. Yeah, and that's why I I presumed that um, based on it seems how standardized it is today in in, yeah. in many of these these countries in this area. So you mentioned uh, taxes earlier. Can you speak more about how how taxes were applied from a policy perspective, but also how what's known about how taxes were uh, collected given the amount of territory that that we're speaking about? Yeah, well, that's that's a, that's a huge question, and that that is the substance of Ottoman historical studies uh, uh, to, to speak of. And the interesting thing is also that it really changes in the 16th century. Um, so if you imagine at the beginning of the 16th century, early in the 16th century, even once the Ottomans are, are installed, the classical system of Ottoman um, provincial administration is what, what you might want to call feudal. Some people will say that that word only applies in Europe and shouldn't be used here. I don't mind it. Um, the point is that the Ottomans tended to distribute land grants um, in Syria and elsewhere to military officers, to you know, some little soldier who might have done well in the last war, and you give him a grant of a couple of villages, you know, a couple of hamlets, where he can live with his family, maybe a couple of retainers, um, maybe two or three buddies who you know should also be horse riding soldiers, and they can live there and live off the land, um, you know, for as long as they like. The only thing that they owe the state is whenever the state calls for a military campaign. And in the 16th century, there's lots of them. You know, the Ottomans are fighting on the European front one year, on the Iranian front the other year. And um, every every couple of campaigns, they might call up all of these 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 knights, let's call them these timar holders, the more Ottoman term, from the provinces, and say, okay, report for duty under the commander, under your commander, who is at the same time the governor of the province of Damascus, for example, or the province of Hama or something, come on campaign. Um, you know, if you fight well, maybe we'll give you a bigger fief next time. Maybe you can even become the next governor of the entire military province. If you die in battle, well, tough luck, then we'll pass it on maybe to your son, if he's a soldier, maybe to someone else. And so there's this, this principle of, um, um, let's say, taxing or, or, or using the surplus of the countryside um, and putting it at the disposal of the central government by way of military service. And this works quite well, um, except for the fact that starting in the 16th century, I mean, this is a critical period, the idea of horse-riding soldiers, basically knights, reporting for duty on horseback to go fight you know, wars in Europe that are increasingly being fought by infantries with firearms. You know, these aren't modern machine guns. Um, for many years, we'll have a real cavalry and a real infantry fighting side by side. But the tendency is away from this provincial cavalry and towards musket-bearing standard armies, standing armies, pardon me. Um, and so this idea of giving military fiefs in the provinces to some guy who's going to live off the land and basically 
collect taxes in kind and just feed his his retainers and his horses, this model is starting to fall by the wayside in the 16th century. And what the government wants more and more is taxes in cash that can be sent to Istanbul to pay the Janissaries, the standing infantry army. And this, of course, requires new techniques and a new distribution, a new definition of who makes a good tax collector, and so on and so forth. Were they seafaring? Do you, as a scholar, when you've gone through the records, do you, do you consider the, the people of the state seafaring in this, in this century? And can you, and if so, can you expand on that? Well, if you're talking about the Ottoman Empire, yes, it was very much a seafaring empire. Um, a big difference, this, this is a, in contrast to the Mamluk Empire, which was not at all very good on water. Their navy was not worth very much. But the Ottomans, having conquered you know, a lot of the Aegean um, and integrated a lot of, of Greek populations with, with old seafaring traditions, having their sights on not just the Eastern Mediterranean, but in fact, you know, the Central, in fact, the Western Mediterranean, they were a great seafaring power. Now, um, the members of their navy, the staff of their navy, didn't necessarily come from places like Syria. In fact, it didn't come from places like Syria very much at all. Um, Syria, which under the Mamluks and before does not have a great seafaring tradition. I mean, obviously, there was always um, international trade uh, throughout the Mediterranean, but very often not organized, not led by, uh, by, by Syrian uh, uh, sailors or captains and so on. Um, so Syria itself was not very much a part of the otherwise very important Ottoman Navy. Okay, yeah, so you consider the the Ottomans very competent as seafaring people, but many, many of the in the records, the um, the the examples of that weren't weren't sourced from people from the Syrian area that we're speaking That's right. about. That's right. I mean, in Syria, we have no important port cities to speak of. That's all fairly small and regional. Um, we have no dockyards, no shipyards, um, no recruiting of local populations to man the galleys and things like that. For other parts of the Ottoman Empire, Southeast Anat Southwest Anatolia and so on, we have tons of records of you know, people in implicated in one way or another in Ottoman naval forces. In Syria, we do not. What can you speak about in this episode, Stefan, about trade and commerce? We, we are speaking about um, you know, be the better part of a century certainly the mo most of the century speaking about a lot of a lot of land um yeah. how much how much international trade was was occurring and um and can you speak about the the congruency between the syrian region and the and the more broader ottoman empire in terms of trade Did, was there particular routes that were very, uh, you know, known and used regularly. Is there anything else that you can speak about in, uh, about trade in this context? Yeah, I mean, the 16th century was, in a way, the golden age for trade in Syria. Uh, the 16th century is often, you know, described as the golden age of the Ottoman Empire because that's when many of these conquests were made and uh, finances were good and so on. And it's certainly true for Syria as well, um, especially the city of Aleppo which was for quite a long time, actually, probably the third largest city of the Ottoman Empire after Istanbul and Cairo, and which served already since before the Ottomans, um, already since you know, probably the Crusades and throughout the Mamluk period, 
as the great Western terminus for the huge international trade routes, which we sometimes refer to as the Silk Road, which is it's an abstraction, but it's, it's not wrong. Um, there were a, a huge amount of, of caravans uh, coming from points very far east sometimes, coming up the Euphrates Valley, coming across eastern Anatolia from, uh, from Iran, um, from Iraq, um, caravans coming up uh, the west coast of the, uh, of the Arab Peninsula and so on. Uh, so Aleppo, even though it's not a coastal town, was probably the major trade center, um, perhaps in the entire Ottoman Empire. As a trade center, it was arguably more important even than Cairo and arguably more important in Istanbul in this period. Um, and this trade was also profited off the fact, of course, that the Europeans were uh, going through a period of great economic expansion in the 16th century due to, well, the consolidation of states like France and, and Spain due to their own discovery and expansion in the Americas. Um, so Europe was emerging as a, as a hugely rich market for luxury goods, which were coming from the East and transiting through Ottoman Syria on their way to cross the Mediterranean. Okay, well, let's, let's chat about that. What would be the, the main, maybe two or three items that were produced in Syria during this century and were being exported to the West to places like uh, in today's Southern Europe? Well, produced in Syria, um, not that much. Uh, there were obviously products as well, but really the, 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 the driving force of this caravan trade and then caravans that are transloaded in Aleppo, put on smaller caravans, brought to the coast and sold off to the Europeans. The main motors of this trade were um, silk, spices, uh, other luxury goods, um, metalwork, um, cloth, some cloths that were produced in Syria, um, Damascene cloth, for example, is famous. Um, but really, in this period, the Ottoman Empire as a whole, and certainly Ottoman Syria, and especially Aleppo, were profiting um, from their central position astride the Silk Road, astride the, the, the east-west uh, global trade routes. So it's not so much a question of local production. That comes to um, cloths become tissues, fabrics become more and more important. Um, later on, gallnuts, no one knows what those are nowadays, but gallnuts used to be in, in dyeing. Um, they're produced in northern Syria. Um, grain starts becoming an issue as well. Uh, Syria and Egypt have always been sort of the uh, the grain basket, the bread basket of empires, and they were that until the Ottoman period, and sometimes grain is sold abroad as well. It sounds like they were, um, in addition to producing some some items, which you just cited a few things there, it sounds like they were largely in, in like a logistic uh, type, type, type business. They were, a, they were a route that other places could use to get their goods to other territories for, for sale. Is anything known in those those cases with caravans? I think you'd use that term moving through their territory. Did the state have a way of earning income from from that transportation? Yes, definitely. I mean, they had every interest in promoting caravan trade because it made the cities uh, that served as the the terminus uh, rich, and they did certainly con uh, collect customs. They collected customs in Aleppo and, and other towns where these caravans wound up. They collected customs along the way. Um, no, this was this was a, a very important source of income for state authorities. 
Okay, so let's let's dovetail then into um, current currency because you, you mentioned collecting uh, these these spots with customs. What what can you say about currency in in this uh, in this period in in uh, in Syria? Uh, that's that's a little more that's a little tougher for me. Um, the short answer is there was a, a great variety of currencies um, because there was no one minting place in the Ottoman Empire, but several different places where the same units, um, usually gold coin, silver coin, and, and uh, for local trade, just uh, just copper coins were minted. There was not one single place. Every place in the Ottoman Empire where there were uh, types of money being minted, the actual content of metal, the actual silver content or gold content might be a little bit different. So there were exchange rates within the empire. And the important thing is that, especially for this, this big item, international trade, the money was coming from the West, from the rich uh, Spaniards and French and, and, and uh, Austrians and so on and so forth. And all of this money was being traded um, in the domestic on the domestic market as well. So in a place like Aleppo, people might be using you know, a dozen different currencies at the same time. Um, and you would know what every what each one was uh, was worth um, on on in terms of market value. Um, what is also interesting, this is getting then later to the 16th century, when the Ottomans start hitting some financial and economic snags, start suffering and dealing with inflation um, for various reasons having to do with you know, politics in Istanbul and so on, and respond in a way that isn't necessarily very good, namely by devaluing their own money in the sense that they start putting less and less gold and less and less silver metal into their own coins, thinking that they can save this stuff to actually make more coins and therefore become richer. You know, it, it doesn't take a brilliant economist to tell you this doesn't actually work because people aren't stupid. They know that the money is not worth as much in terms of metal content as before. Um, this, uh, this only leads to more inflation. And this was hugely destabilizing for the Ottoman Empire then in the late 16th century. Is there a scientific innovation or breakthrough or two that you want to mention that happened in this territory in the period that we're speaking about today? A scientific breakthrough or innovation? Um, I'll be honest, nothing really comes to mind. And this is controversial as well, because some people, you know, historians of Syria and the Arab world will will kind of go and say, you know, what, what did the Ottomans ever do for us? Um, this was a period of scientific decline. All the Ottomans were interested in was, you know, skimming uh, maximum of revenue from the provinces and so on and so forth. Um, I'm not sure that's completely right, and I'm not sure it's completely wrong. What is um, a factor is that with the conquest and the annexation of Syria to the Ottoman Empire, this empire, which in the 16th century is, you know, still works very, very well. It's hugely rich. It's well connected. It's innovative and so on. But the fact of the matter is um, the center, the political center, the educational center, the scientific center has moved far away. It is now in Istanbul. At least in the Mamluk period, you know, Cairo, Cairo was closer. Um, the scholarly families of Cairo spoke the same language as the scholarly families of uh, of, of Damascus and, and, and Aleppo, it was still a little more in, uh, intimate. Now, any brilliant scholar in, in Damascus or Cairo or anywhere else who wants to make a career of it is not going to stay in those cities anymore. He's going to have to go to, to Istanbul. So whatever scientific progress, innovation, technological innovation, 
progress of any kind, um, it's still happening, but it's it's really concentrated in the great new capital, Istanbul. Okay, so when we get to the end of the period, to create some juxtaposition, can you describe in your words what this territory would have been like by the end of the period when comparing it to the start of the period being the 1516 when you said that Syria came under Ottoman rule. Can you create, whether there's similarities or juxtaposition, but can you can you compare the, the end of the period to the start of the period? Well, I mean, there really is quite an important evolution on, on, on several, uh, several, several levels, several aspects. Um, for one, I mean, like any empire, the Ottomans, when they come in 1516, they don't have a you know territorially completely integral uh, sovereignty over of the region like any empire yes it involves military conquest and, and battles and so on but it also involves a lot of co-optation of local authorities local tribal leaders local village leaders local religious leaders um making it worth their while to flip their allegiances from you know the mamluks before to the ottoman empire now in 1516, for example, many of the first Ottoman governors in Damascus, in Cairo, in, in, in Aleppo, were former Mamluk officers who had served the Mamluks loyally and who were now reinvested in, in their old positions or similar positions, um, so long as they were loyal to the Ottomans. Um, this is a strategy that the Ottomans, just like any pre-modern empire, had to use like in all of its provinces. Think of all, you know, the warlords in the Balkans who didn't even convert from Christianity to Islam and can, can continue to serve the Ottomans as, as local Christian princes in charge of collecting taxes and paying yearly tribute to the central government. In Syria, you have kind of the same thing happening. With time, however, um, the Ottomans start um, systematizing more and more their own way of doing things, their own rule. They send their own... Um, military personnel, they send their own uh, uh, feudal uh, feudal lords who are controlling these villages and these hamlets. They send their own governors who are no longer local or ex-Mamluk officers, but they're former members of the Janissary Corps in, in Istanbul and so on and so forth. So with time, um, Syria does get slowly uh, more and more integrated into the actual autumn way of doing things. So this is important. In economic terms, like I've already suggested, um, the economy is becoming more and more cash-based. This idea that you know your most important tax collectors are just kind of guys with their horse who live in the villages, who might go off to war every now and again, but who live off the land, this is changing. We don't need those guys anymore. We want cash. To get cash, we have to have more developed markets. Um, the, you know, the, the, the grain, um, Grain surpluses have to be sold for money, which has to be sent on to Istanbul or, or distributed to uh, people who need cash in the provinces, um, things like that. So the economy is changing. The economy is very good in the 16th century. It's a period of great growth, among other reasons, because Mediterranean trade is, is going so well. But yes, it also leads to problems. Great growth leads to great problems, leads to inflation, leads to overpopulation in some areas, leads to um, excessive demands for military fiefs and other sources of income on the part of Ottoman officers. Um, so all of this is um, 
is an important change as well. Uh, the cities, the major cities, places like Aleppo and Damascus, seem to have grown quite significantly through most of the 16th period, uh, 16th century. Um, they developed. There's great urbanization. We see that people are coming in from the provinces. A lot of Christians are coming in from villages and starting to live in Aleppo and, and Damascus. Um, this is an important change. Other lesser cities that no one's really heard of before, you know, Latakia, Antioch, Tripoli, all of these cities are growing quite quickly too. Okay, we reached the end of the period in the conversation that we're speaking about today, Stefan. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Winter wrote, he's author of A History of the Alawis, From Medieval Aleppo to the Turkish Republic. And he's co-editor of the book, Aleppo and its Hinterland in the Ottoman Period. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Stefan and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.